नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार बग पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी डिस्कसिंग द सेकंड बुक ऑन सावरकर रिटन बाय विक्रम संपत इट इज एन एब्सोल्यूट प्लेजर टू हैव विक्रम अगेन ऑन द पॉडकास्ट विक्रम थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग थैंक यू कुशल इट्स इट्स बीन अ ईयर आई थिंक लास्ट अगस्त वाज व्हेन वी uh quite belatedly had the uh, podcast for the first volume and now you're the first one to uh you know interview me on a podcast uh, series <laughs> awesome man and it, it, it is an absolute honor because for me and i've said this to you offline too these two books are going to go down in the history of indian political historiography or when people do you know sociological studies of indian indian freedom fighters or indian movements i think this book will be a seminal contribution both the volumes and i want to thank you on behalf of every indian who watches the charvak podcast or does not watch or listen to the charvak podcast for writing these books you have done a fantastic job vikram thank you thank you so much kushal that means a lot Uh, so vikram let's begin with this so obviously uh, we have dealt with the first volume in detail and uh, this one is in the latter half of savarkar's career now there are many things that uh, i want to ask you but let's start with this now you start this this volume with a brief introduction of actually the the social landscape of india so you touch upon uh, the various movements which were happening uh, at least in terms of hindu revivalism or hindu reform movements whatever word somebody wants to use i mean i i don't know which word should we use because there are different movements you touch upon when you begin this book to lay the landscape and make people understand where savarkar was coming from so could you tell uh, tell us a little bit about that yeah so uh the 1920s i mean this was just the time when you know uh, there was so much of uh, communal strife in fact i quote one of the uh, the, the the british records uh, stating that you know before there used to be hindu muslim uh, riots and so on only during say uh, you know ganesh chaturthi or eid or whatever but then now every other um every second week or every second month we having some uh, conflict or conflagration between these two communities and how difficult it is to contain all of this so obviously india in the 1920s was a tinderbox much a communal tinderbox and my hypothesis and i think what the records also state were uh, this was the aftermath of the failure of the khilafat movement uh, on which i pin a lot of uh, you know the problems of religion getting into politics in a very very dangerous manner uh, and when the uh, you know the promises that were made uh, you know by mahatma gandhi about uh getting both swaraj in a year as well as reestablishing the caliphate in turkey within one year uh, both of which failed uh, of course the congressmen and those who were in the non cooperation movement they carried on the fight but those of uh, the muslim community uh, who were mobilized into the khilafat movement and their adhe- adherents many of them went berserk and so you had everything right from the mopla carnage in malabar to uh, riots in different parts of india uh, you know um Uh, in uh, gulbarga pan uh, uh, 
Panipat, Kohat, the Kohat massacre, Bengal, Delhi, different parts of India. Uh, and in this backdrop, we also had uh, the Arya Samaj doing a lot of work in terms of uh, uh, Shuddhi, uh, quite in contrast to the Tablig uh, that the, uh, the that was happening of converting people uh, into Islam. So there, there was no mechanism by which people who were converted out of the Hindu fold, if they really wanted to return, there was no mechanism to get them back. Just crossing the seas or whatever would lead to loss of caste. So, uh, you know, getting uh, out of uh, Hindu. Hinduism that to and becoming a Muslim, there was no way you would be accepted socially. So in this backdrop, uh, the Shuddhi movements that um, uh, initially the, uh, Swami Dayanand Saraswati and later, of course, Swami Shraddhanand, uh, you know, carried out in different parts of uh, uh, northern India, western India, northwestern India. Uh, these were happening. And you also had the Hindu Mahasabha, which uh, in some way uh, was established, uh, in my view, to counter the, the growing consolidation of uh, uh, you know political islam uh, with the muslim league the lucknow pact that happened in 1916 giving separate uh, electorates for muslims and so on uh, reservation of seats so you needed a counter politically so the hindu mahasabha was a fledgling i mean it was a umbrella kind of an organization it had no uh, you know very very clear clear cut um, objectives many members had dual membership with the congress whether it was Madan Mohan Malviya, even Swami Shraddhanand, though he was in the Arya Samaj, he was also in the Congress. Uh, they were a very close uh, confidant of uh, Gandhiji himself. And so, so it, there was nothing watertight compartments. People were very nebulous. People were moving in and out. And the Congress was that. It was a large social, political, cultural umbrella where uh, all these issues, including uh, the political emancipation of India, uh, became a part of a platform to voice you know all of these um, uh, these concerns but at the same time during this very period you also a few years through the late 1920s you had the uh, campaigns of dr ambedkar the mahat satyagraha the um, the campaigns for temple entry to usage of the village wells water uh, you know all of that so there was all, there was that movement happening as well and maharashtra i mean a lot of the earlier social reformers right from mahatma phule and the satyashodhak mandal and so on from there onwards leading forward ambedkar uh, became a very natural, you know, the baton passed to him to uh, do uh, to carry on the work of uh, social emancipation, particularly of the so-called lower caste or the untouchables. So I think these were the broad features of the. Uh, you know what stood out to me was that uh, that particular quote where you have you used from uh, Lieutenant Colonel U. N. Mukherjee from his book The Dying Race, and I think we should read this. Yeah. It's a very yeah. interesting quote where uh, you said so. It's written here. We Hindus are most ridiculously, most contemptibly ignorant. We have no idea about what is going on around us. Others are not quite so ignorant. How do the two communities stand? The Mohammedans have a future and they believe in it. We Hindus have no conception of it. Time is with them. Time is against us. At the end of the years, they count their grains. We calculate our losses. They are growing in number, growing in strength. Growing in wealth, growing in solidarity, we are crumbling to pieces. They look forward to a united Muhammadan world. We are awaiting our extinction. Now, to 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 understand this quote is obviously in the book you you talk about how you know you're not allowed to dine in between different castes. Uh, this caste is not allowed in that temple. 
then that temple has a separate rule also i will only allow my jati people to enter and it's it's like all over the place and in a mm. scenario like this mm. now a lot so obviously so for me arya samaj doing this is very natural because my mom's side is arya samaji and you just hear these things you read books mm. but what i have noticed was the one thing that stood out to me was this particular court of <laughs> savarkar that uh, where savarkar literally and categorically basically goes ahead and credits the arya samaj uh, where i think you've quoted in the hindu mahasabha itself is in fact but an enlarged and more comprehensive edition of the arya samaj the mm-hmm. honor of being the first apostle of hindu sanghatna in modern days must ever rest with swami dayanand saraswati so yeah. when you hear some quote like this about the arya samaj there are two natural things that come into my brain as like a bravo dayanand saraswati uh-huh. and b what the hell were we doing समाज really brought the topic of social conditions where you know including there were uh, quotes about how in schools if if uh, the, the most of the children belonging to so called untouchable communities had to sit outside and if the teacher had to admonish them they would throw a chalk from uh, within so you would not even they could not even be touched even to to uh, hit them and <laughs> these tonga walas and all of these people uh, um, and savarkar writes about it where you actually take uh, take a muslim in your uh, tonga whatever but then you don't let uh, a hindu uh, of your own um, faith because he or she belongs to a lower uh, community so and this whole thing within the brahmins itself i mean the deshasthas will not uh, dine with the chitpavans who will not dine with someone else and all of these different things uh, i don't know how much of it we really kushal even got rid of even now uh, after 100 years since the time uh, i think we in uh, urban india still f- feel very emancipated and probably caste does not matter so much but as that famous quote says jati wo hai jo jati nahi hai so i think it's somewhere the whole thing being ingrained uh, in the indian psyche i think that's that's uh, that's something that Savarkar and Ambedkar both in some way fought for us. So how do you? It's not just piecemeal. You know, you just remove something here, remove a particular. You just need to get rid of the whole idea that human beings are different based on the basis of their birth. Uh, and um, you know that was really not what the Varna system, uh, as it was originally conceived of, even by you know Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, where he says all the Varnas are created by me, not on the basis of uh, you know heredity, but it's on the basis of your gunas. Uh, so uh, we're all born a shudra, and then we ascend uh, you know in terms of intellect, in terms of consciousness, and aspire to become a, a, a Brahmin, and you know that. is not the caste brahmin so a uh, um, uh, a very very scholarly man's uh, son 
maybe a shudra or maybe a very militarily adept and so akshatriya so these kind of uh, the, the original texts and what they said that itself being corrupted over the centuries and becoming such stratified social evils i think it needed a lot of guts and courage for people like these to uh, call for their dismantling uh, complete dismantling and not for piecemeal reforms so i think these uh, social aspects it was very very moving to uh, and you know there's also that whole episode where they all enter uh, you know the temple um, in um, in uh, ratnagiri uh, where all, after a lot of negotiations with the temple trustees and then savarkar uh, composes that poem uh, you know let me have a glimpse of my god don't create these walls between me and my uh, creator and all of them are singing that and they have tears uh, you know going down their cheeks and then uh, that's how they enter the temple of course despite him being so influential many other temples including the ram uh, lord ram temple in the in nashik which was his birth i mean the 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 birth district even there his writ did not run uh, you know so uh, he could not convince many of those temples to open their gates for people of all communities so at a time when your numerical strength also mattered not just you know for social emancipation and all of that but also politically uh, you know how you enumerate yourself in the census on the basis of which government was giving you representational uh, proportional representation in the legislature or the parliament uh, how uh, splintered we were in our thinking and we as in the hindu society to think all these differences which were birth based uh, mattered so much and in fact yeah savarkar's quote there also where he says if you think someone like a scholar like ambedkar if you think he is not worthy of respect who else uh, is you know and you you go and fondle uh, a dog or a cat and all of that and have them as pets but you will not touch another human being so i think that was a extremely uh, i mean no there's no two words about how inhuman uh, caste differences were but what were the responses of that uh, by all these protagonists of the time i think that becomes very important yeah and you know what everybody is going to be like oh what are the relations between gandhi and savarkar you know that bit has been <laughs> i don't know beaten to the pulp in my view the most <laughs> fascinating aspect for me in this book was the savarkar ambedkar relationship now mm. they had a lot of agreements but what you bring out in this book is ambedkar strategically avoided sharing the dais with savarkar forever possible that that's fascinating can you share a little bit of that <laughs> so yeah i mean those 13 years that savarkar was in ratnagiri and his work there was uh, because he was debarred from politics uh, initially for 5 years and then that term keeps getting extended every 2 to 2 years up to 1937 so 1924 to 1937 13 years and that's where he makes ratnagiri like a social laboratory for all these uh, aspects of uh, hindutva consolidation of hindu society social reforms and uh, i think to a large extent succeeds in earth shattering reforms in uh, in ratnagiri in terms of all these intercaste dining intercaste marriage the temple entry schools for uh, 
you know where untouchable uh, so called untouchable children can sit and um, study with the other um, you know kids untouchable teachers who could teach um, have these community ganpati utsavs where there is a asprusha ganpati uh, itself who uh, where you know the the, the person who is worshiping the ganpati is a is a mahar or a bhangi or one of the lowest of the uh, lot and all through uh, i mean savarkar is writing these letters to ambedkar saying you know come to ratnagiri uh, see the work we have done i don't believe in theories and giving lectures and all of that i am a man of uh, action and so we have worked really hard the ratnagiri hindu sabha uh, and through a lot of effort through a lot of money spent through a lot of social backlash that the orthodoxy uh, you know gave to him and his uh, associates uh, in ratnagiri we have achieved a lot over these years uh, so why don't you come over here and have a look for yourself uh, since i am debarred from you know doing work outside this district you can probably scale this formula up to uh, the rest of india and to to other parts at least maharashtra and if we work together like this in a decade or so he was very confident that untouchability could be eradicated from uh, from the country and his other important uh, fact was also that you know traditionally it's always the upper caste exploited the lower caste and so mm. but then he said even within the lower caste and he writes that also to ambedkar that you know you are a mahar so but then there are so many others who are so called much lower in the social hierarchy to even your caste and there is that mm. Uh, continual uh, you know uh, discrimination that you people uh, uh, have for the caste lower than yours so can you also don't just make it an upper caste versus lower caste story but let's remove distinction across the board uh, you know in, even among the so called lower caste all these hierarchies the lowest man in uh, or woman in that ladder uh, that person needs to feel emancipated so come and see this let's work out uh, but then i think because of the fact that during that those 13 years savarkar was constantly under surveillance he had not gained the confidence or uh, trust of the british government ever and so that's one reason why they were extending his uh, you know in um, captivity in ratnagiri uh, it's probably one reason why ambedkar thought it prudent and strategic never to meet him never to though every time there was an opportunity he would agree but in the last minute he would say something some other work has come i have fallen ill or whatever and the two never met when, as long as he was in captivity in ratnagiri they met later of course but uh, by then savarkar was a free man so i'm i don't know what were baba sahab's uh, you know um, inhibitions about getting associated and thereby the taint of association with him uh, to uh, you know haunting him or so uh, so it's very but then he sent a lot of uh, you know laudatory letters to him including he said you are the only one who understands that the varna uh, varnashram system is at the root cause of all social evils and that needs to be uh, you know removed for us to remove because every varna then breaks up into thousands of jatis and upajatis so if, unless you get the root out um, the varna not as was understood maybe in the gita or whatever but the way it has become today um, because he at that time was having a running feud with gandhi on uh, matters of caste the puna pact and so many things going on so he found an ideological ally in savarkar uh in terms of uh, caste and social emancipation but never thought it prudent to ever share stage with a fellow maharashtrian <laughs> yeah you know what in fact from how i have understood this if 
you know ambedkar is famous for his words the annihilation of caste mm. uh but if there ever was someone who genuinely believed in the annihilation of this entire system i think it's savarkar savarkar to matlab comes with like the entire ak for i think he comes with a tank to this system he's like uda do isko puri tarah se isko ek ek kan bhi nahi rehna chahiye yeah, right yeah yeah all those seven shackles vedokta bandi vyavsay bandi sparsh bandi shuddhi bandi samudra bandi beti bandi roti bandi i mean everything you know uh, right from uh, as i said intercaste marriage dining untouchability reconversion uh, the vedas uh, so there's a lot of uh, you know conjecture there too that he used to conduct these sacred thread the yagyopavit upanayana ceremonies to people of uh, the so called lower caste so many people commentators today his critics also say Uh, you know if he was against the caste then why was he putting this uh, you know the 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 sacred thread on people no the sacred thread per se is not like a symbol of oppression or whatever if everybody you you either i mean two ways to deal with it is either uh, like what maybe the periyar movement did you know get into people's houses cut off their uh, janeu and things like that uh, or you give it to everybody once it is democratized and universalized to any everyone then there is no uh, special privileges any one community can have and his vedokta bandi was exactly that he said the vedic literature uh, and vedic knowledge is universal knowledge it's human knowledge it is not the preserve of only the brahmin community so if you think you know to access the vedas you need the 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 sacred thread and the gayatri mantra so here take everybody let's all take it let's all uh, get the passport uh, to enter this realm of uh, very unique civilizational knowledge that india had to offer Uh, rather than keep it as a you know being gatekeepers of this uh, Im- immense knowledge so i think these differences in approach as to how you deal with social um, you know emancipation that's uh, very noticeable but then yeah i mean these were all very very earth shattering reforms obviously he didn't know or didn't realize or I, I, that was indian society ready for so much of uh, so much of changes we are not ready even now everything happens uh, you know step by step of course he is one of the tenets uh, there were four i think main tenets that he spoke of one was it can't be a top down approach where someone is telling you what to do you have to talk to them a lot of Uh, discussion conciliation convincing of people uh, of both castes in fact i mention in the book how even members of the uh, so called lower caste they were very scared and very they had their inhibitions when mm-hmm. even savarkar used to enter the maharwada and all of that they would all close their doors the men would yeah. ask their wives to say usko batao i'm not at home uh, so even when uh, they would ask let's um, can you send your children no it's raining acha i'll give you a chhata now you please come so they had to literally coax them into uh, you know uh, coming into the mainstream uh, so of course 10 years 13 years was what it took 10 years to build the whole you know infrastructure convince people so that was one thing the other aspect was as this whole myth that uh, you know you convert to islam and christianity and then the social differences will go uh, but then those he writes extensively about how there are so many subcastes and subsects even within those faiths uh, it's not monolithic as is understood so you know and 
we are bailed out today when there is talk of reservation for dalit christians and all of that that even if you convert to uh, the community your social structure remains the same perhaps so you'd rather remain in the hindu fold if you have to suffer the same discrimination then why do you have to change uh, your uh, faith of birth and then of course this you know the the the, the as i said the the discrimination within the so so called lower caste so all these aspects were what he had of course these were the tenets on which he based his social emancipation on but uh, i think a man in too much of a hurry and how much of it actually translated into action uh, results beyond ratnagiri ratnagiri was of course like a model a pilot project that he could showcase uh, but beyond that it was probably tough to scale it up and replicate it though at least of course he made it a point including you know uh, whenever he was invited to any event including bal gandharva when he invites him to some uh, play of his he says i will come as a chief guest only if the play is followed by sahabhojan among all cast yes. so wherever he made including prabodhan thakre uh, you know he also uh, bala sahab thakre is uh, father uh, even he uh, was told you participate in the sahabhojan the intercaste uh, dining uh, events so all his and that continued even during his hindu mahasabha years where uh, you know during his presidential address or even during all these regional uh, you know conferences that the hindu mahasabha would have they would always be followed by a very very visible um, um, you know dining of people of all communities in which he would participate so pluses minuses but yeah how much of it actually translated across the board that becomes a question to probably evaluate true another thing that stands out for me was uh, you know how savarkar's understanding of hindutva and hinduism was again you 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 give a beautiful quote where mm-hmm. uh, you say savarkar says and i quote let hinduism concern itself with the salvation of life after death the conception of god and the universe let individuals be free to form opinions about the trio the whole universe from one end to the other is the real book of religion but so far as the materialistic and secular aspect is concerned the hindus are a nation bound by a common culture a common history a common language and a common country and this to me again at a sociological level this man had a lot of conceptual clarity and, yeah. and it is unbelievable that at that time he thought of these things because this is what 1920s 1930s 1940s yeah. and we're still arguing about this this stuff to this day and and you know this the standard oh hindutva is this hinduism is this hindutva is that the man was clear i yeah. think in my understanding savarkar was basically very clear that you know hindutva is the large bracket Hindutva is like the Android app, you know, Android platform, and yeah. you know you have your different puns. तुम लोगों को जो करना है करो, मगर ये एक common हमारा रास्ता है, हम इसपे चलने वाले, अभी चुपचाप चलो मेरे साथ. That was his way. So I don't yeah. destroy the pluralism. To destroy the pluralism yeah. of Hinduism, and तुम लोगों को जो करना है करो, but the man was as secular as it gets. People may not like Rasavarkar about uh, about some stuff. Then I guess. Hmm. True. Very very true. I think you. that was a very very correct analysis where you know including on all these difficult issues cow worship and all of that you do what you want but then uh, constitutional and legal uh, in a legal framework in a political framework everybody is equal uh, that kind of a uh, you know approach and i think that also traced back to his whole you know childhood influences the utilitarianism and spencer and all of that that he read as a child 
uh, and in addition to of course indian philosophers whether it was swami vivekananda and dayanand saraswati and all of them so uh, yeah i think he constantly mentions that hindutva is like the umbrella and hinduism is just one of the subsects of it and i really have not much to do with the theological constructs and all these yeah like you mentioned what happens after life and all of that because the concerns at that time were and that's for the saints and the uh, you know the the sages of the faiths to uh, you know obsess about uh, he had a very life challenge in front of him and that was uh the uh, attack of the abrahamic faiths and so in a time when uh you know uh, political decisions were being made on the basis of uh, religion as well as numbers as also you know um uh, constitution of the uh, indian army which was being increasingly communalized uh, and the percentages uh, we can talk about that later of course about how different uh, communities fared within the indian army and so on so i think the the clarity as you said was very including in the census you know uh, the congress used to boycott the census saying it's a communal exercise and he would argue all the time ki you know you people have agreed to the communal award now the communal award is going to give representation on the basis of community now when you agree to that and then if the government says we want to enumerate how many is how many people are hindus how many people are muslims how many are jews parsi sikhs and christians and then give according representation that you say is communal but you have agreed to the original thing which is the award itself so and then uh, what's the point uh, to to stay away from the census uh, would be the most anti national and anti hindu kind of act is, according to him because there you know the numbers you would enumerate yourself as a arya samaji or a brahmo samaji or a lingayat or a something else and so you would not call yourself as uh, as a hindu so the numbers would be 5% here 10% here whereas a, a muslim would not say i am a shia or a sunni or a barelvi or whatever they would uh, you know uh, call themselves by their uh, the main faith so your numbers are going to decline and then your representation is going to decline and politically then you will then start becoming irrelevant so this whole social consolidation that's also something that they they talk about that was all his social reforms only driven by uh, the fact that he he wanted these numbers for the hindu community uh, yes i know i mean what's wrong if you want to consolidate somebody uh, a, a splintered society politically but that uh, when you see the depth and the breadth of the reforms that he did uh, for the complete eradication of that it was not just expediency of just you know uh, for political reasons that we want people together but it was also a very emancipatory kind of a thought process that led him to undertake all these reforms and you know to to justify that because you know, somebody might accuse uh, if not you me of being oh kushal you're just you know you're just quoting you are doing quote mining you are just picking one quote from vikram's book and trying to weave a narrative uh, just to back myself up again from vikram's book i just want to say people should read the list of the 16 fundamental rights envisaged you know for a citizen and in some of those rights vikram i was blown away and if you remember i had whatsapp you i was like ye likha tha in logon ne kind of a situation <laughs> i was like acha ye log aisi baat hai ke is like you know this is like the second amendment of india was envisaged by 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 savarkar like every citizen shall have the right to keep and bear arms in accordance with regulations made in that behalf i was yeah. like wo ye matlab ye american second amendment ke level mein tha these kinds these kinds of things and uh, even in the field of uh, you know education they said uh, that 
people have a right uh, like no person attending any school receiving state aid or other yeah. public money shall be compelled to attend the religious instruction that may be given in the school which yeah. means the point was that look the state and your individual life should hmm. be separate it's quite clear even and the irony of ironies is that you know today in the mainstream media narrative rss to chhod do like rss se bhi do kadam aage hindu mahasabha ka naam aata hai buraiyon mein and if this is the version of the conception of the indian state of the hindu mahasabha then why are people so surprised when a prime minister like narendra modi enters the parliament he bows down before then he enters inside the parliament he bows down to the constitution these are very normal things because even the hindus mahasabha was pretty secular in its outlook right correct correct and secular in the true sense of the word where he says yeah, yeah you're not uh, the the uh, all these uh, rights and privileges will be given to the minorities pro- provided the equal rights of the majority is not trampled upon and today uh, today's india where everything right from you know uh, temples uh, being under government control whereas you have the institutions of uh, other communities uh, open to their own control and becoming large fiefdoms of so much of wealth and all of that i think that becomes uh, very pertinent i think for the viewers who may not know what you were referring to so in 1945 is when um, uh, the hindu mahasabha put a lot of thought together and bhopatkar there was kv kelkar db gokhale and mr uh, dhamdhare all of these people were a form of a part of a committee which uh, deliberated for several months and brought out a draft constitution because at that time we were going all around in circles kya karna hai whether there is going to be independence dominion status what is the nature of the, this one half of almost all of the congress was in jail so there was no leadership from the congress at that time the muslim league was being uh, obdurate uh, and all these you know machinations were happening and at that time the hindu mahasabha said you all forget it we will sit and we will draft a constitution and uh, they called it also the the, the constitution of uh, hindustan free state now very few people would actually know that know that such a document existed and this was also referenced in the constituent assembly debates where uh, congressman v n gadgil also says you know the um, uses this document uh, in the debates and says uh, this also believed in a strong union uh, the similarities between the final constitution of india and this draft are very very striking uh, it was a, almost a 100 page document so i couldn't include much of it but i think um, i don't know where it's available i'll probably put it up on some uh, open source uh, space so that people can read that and see the similarities including how you know the 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 the, the um uh, judiciary the uh, executive the legislature the federal structure what's the role of the president of india what are his or her powers what is the role of the prime minister the council of ministers everything uh, you know laid out and these uh, 16 fundamental rights that you spoke about one of and who's a indian citizen the Hin- uh, it's only the hindus none of that it said you need to have a, anyone with 7 years uh, you know if you are uh, here of domicile or you're born of indian parents then you would be a citizen and every citizen is given among others so particularly the uh, the one freedom of religion and so on i'll just read that out saying freedom of conscience and the free profession and practice of religion and the protection of culture and language are subject to public order and morality guaranteed to every citizen uh, 
and no law shall be made either directly or indirectly to endow any religion or prohibit and restrict the free exercise thereof or give any preference or impose any disability on account of religious beliefs or religious status it also laid out that you know as you said no person attending any school receiving state aid or other public money shall be compelled to attend the uh, the religious instruction that may be given in the school public money was not to be utilized for the exclusive propagation or benefit of any particular sect community or religion and that they would be and that's more important no state religion in free hindustan or its provinces and so minorities were actually the seen as equal stakeholders and not as some second class mm-hmm. citizens and all that as it's made out and there also you know utilitarianism that i mentioned he said that you can give minority uh, institutions money from the state exchequer but that should be a proportion of the amount of taxes they pay to the national exchequer so if you are useful to the country you get something back if you are a liability then you don't get anything back so you give something for the building of your nation in return you get the rewards and i don't see anything wrong in that where uh, constantly the thing is the majority rights are not going to be trampled the, these are all matters of faith which should be in the precincts of your house and not come into public space and uh, public policy so i don't know if uh, there could be any better definition or enumeration of the word secularism itself because that's what it would yeah. mean of religion yeah. not being a part of politics or policy ironically in india and this is what uh, you know this is where i'm going to be forever grateful to both you and tripurdaman singh you know you two are my favorite indian historians now because the irony of ironies in india is and again these are my views these are not vikram's views so, so i just want to state it on the record that everybody seems to romanticize nehru in this country and if it was not for people like vikram and tripurdaman Tripurdaman for the 16 stormy days who basically narrates the entire story of how free speech in India was murdered and how there are only few people in India the champion amongst them being again a former member of the Hindu Mahasabha Shama Prasad Mukherjee yeah. fighting and fighting and fighting and Savarkar is I won't say Savarkar is at the level of Shama Prasad Mukherjee when it comes to free speech but the point is the so called fascist bigoted people of India were always on the side of freedom and the so called liberal of india who made india modern was always against freedom i don't understand what the hell is happening <laughs> very very true i mean including uh, you know the approach of uh, you know nehru particularly after independence and the way he treats his political opposition including you know after gandhi's murder i mean uh, okay i mean uh, godse and apte were all former members of the rss they had actually um, um, in in disdain for the organization left it uh, but just because they had they were ex members of the rss something like 20000 uh, you know members of the rss being rounded up uh, you know in the first ever uh, preventive detention act that was uh, used and all of them put in jail including women and children and all of that just because you were associated with the rss the rss itself being banned what way would somebody like that have a role in gandhi's murder it was a heinous crime that's that apart you have caught the convicts you i mean the the the, the assassins uh, try them what's the point in rounding up 20000 not one or two but 20000 people we talk of emergency in the 70s what was this 
where uh, for no with no charge they had to spend 6 to 8 months in jail uh, and then come back and another 5 6000 of the other hindu organization so something uh, around 25 to 30000 people in 1948 barely 6 months after the birth of the uh, free indian state uh, a more draconian way than the british government would have done the first indian government actually put hindus into jail uh, people belonging to hindu organizations into jail just because they were or they were either current members or ex members of these organizations uh, and how liberal is that and then in the 1950s um, because you know when the nehru liaquat ali pact was uh, being signed even then you know same preventive detention act uh, being invoked on what uh, the, the, which section of that which said uh, anybody who's calling for a dismemberment of uh, a foreign nation uh you know poses a threat to indian uh, government also and they are liable to be put behind bars now because the the hindu sanghathans and the organizations were constantly you know it was still nascent the whole partition and the creation of pakistan because they were against pakistan that became a crime and so calling for dismemberment of pakistan and a unification of reunification of india was cons- construed as treason and uh, again the same thing all of them savarkar by then had not even he was not even in politics or not even giving statements he was also hold up and put in jail so that nehru and liaquat ali could uh, f- sign their uh, treaty in peace so so many such instances where you know at a fundamental level a political opposition being crushed this way and systematically if you see i don't know anybody who uh, opposed the ruling dispensation within and outside the government how their importance was diminished uh, you know ambedkar faded away into oblivion uh, sardar patel i think since the time of uh, gandhi's murder the constant insinuation was that he did not do enough to save gandhi's life shama prasad mukherjee dying in mysterious circumstances in kashmir Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose constantly under surveillance, and we still don't know uh, whether he died, whether he came back. Gumnavi Baba theory and all of that, which uh, my dear friend Anuj and Chandrachur would, uh, you know, know a lot more on. So all this happening at that time to ensure political opposition is completely cancelled, almost building up. to that autocratic emergency uh, you know um, uh, regime that we saw in the 1970s so yes for for all the liberal tag that the the first government of independent india gets these are also facts which uh, probably we don't acknowledge of course i'm not even getting into the uh, you know the way artists and writers and all of those would be booked and sent to jail including a majru sultan puri or whoever else and the maximum number of books being banned during those times anything that was nine hours to rama or so many such books uh, you know which were critical of either nehru or of the government uh, so yeah freedom of speech i think that's a whole new debate to 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 see what 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 was the course of that in free india right from 1947 till 2021 <laughs> so obviously i i want to talk about the gandhi murders also but just one part about the savarkar ambedkar relationship that i was thinking about uh, so obviously ambedkar later on goes on to quit uh, i don't know leave hinduism and get into buddhism i don't know what buddhism 
uh, it is i think ambedkar's understanding of buddhism and buddhism in the classical sense are definitely two different things i i think the buddhism that ambedkar went into is neo ambedkarism if i was to say something of that sort so so what do you think uh, savarkar's opinions were in that aspect or did savarkar make any public statements on that on that angle yeah i i think i do quote that uh, in the book where he says uh, he was rather upset by this whole idea and he said uh, he even wrote, uh, writes a couple of articles on that saying you know ambedkar and his followers may today you know eschew uh, the religion of their uh, their birth and then take up some other faith but then um, their future generations would realize that it was a mistake and they'll come back and so uh, you know uh, but uh, of course he was he was uh, there was on the one hand this feeling but on the other hand there was also that uh, consolation that okay you were within the so called indic fold and you know you he didn't convert to say islam or christianity and i think kushal that that brings um, we, we need to address the uh, you know the, the bull bites horns that these are very two very different world views uh, theologically i mean and uh, we better un- accept that and that's what these people including savarkar said unless you uh, diagnose the problem and if you if you're in denial all the time uh, you can't treat a cancer you know you ag- mm-hmm. agree that there is a problem then you can look at solutions as to how to deal with it so the the abrahamic world view of uh, you know my way or the highway there's only one road to salvation there's just one god one book and all of that one messenger and anybody who doesn't belong to that either needs to be brutalized or needs to be brought into the fold by any means stands on one side and our entire you know um, history of invasions or imperialism and colonialism all of that were driven by this very uh, zeal of as to how you can go around the entire world and that's a part of an ordained duty uh, a divinely ordained duty to kind of bring everyone into the fold on the other hand you have a set of faiths which say there is just uh, there is one truth but there are multiple paths to it and all of that uh, so when the two clash uh, obviously you know th- there is going to be a lot of friction there's going to be a lot of uh, civilizational conflict that it generates now all these protagonists i think they understood that there was this fundamental difference how they responded to that was very very different because i i constantly say i don't think gandhi ji did not get this because his whole thing that you know you say you strive for hindu muslim unity if it is already there you know why do you have to strive for it uh, you uh-huh. know uh, and and this whole thing ganga jamuni tehzeeb what is and that clearly shows because the idea of uh, pakistan emanated not ironically not in those areas which formed west or east pakistan but in the uttar pradesh of today the united provinces so the ganga and jamuna being there uh, this whole language of ganga jamuna tehzeeb also i bring out is a more of a 1937 construct where uh, the muslim mass contact programs that nehru and his socialist friends uh, you know do it was then so why can't there be a krishna godavari <laughs> tehzeeb yeah ஒன்ஸ்ட்ரம் <laughs> 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 to spite the muslim league and try to 
appeal and appease uh, themselves to the muslim community which boomerang so badly on them so there was gandhi's approach where you say you you know you be the bigger brother you give concessions you uh, you know understand that there is some uh, yeah we are we have differences but let's try to more of a meeting of hearts or whatever uh, you had an ambedkar uh, solution to where in his book and his thoughts which i quote as well saying you know if these are these are such different clash of civilizations uh, there's no he calls savarkar's formula as being illogical and queer and that you know there's no point of the two communities in staying together let there be a complete uh, you know um, uh, you you get both of them out and then say two brothers who who can't live together so we'll separate and uh, build our own houses in our own way but savarkar again there i mean he He, while he said that there there are differences he still tried can he opposed partition till the end and he and the hindu mahasabha with the with the uh, you know idea that through these constitutional means the the constitution that i mentioned they are assuring the minorities that you know all these differences are theological and faith based uh, differences they don't necessarily need to come in the welding of a nation Uh, uh, constitutionally, politically, legally, and so on. So, can we get together on those bases and still try to live together? Because the sacred geography of India, I think, for the Hindutva Vadis is very, very uh, you know uh, special. It's like vivisection of the mother. So, uh, the as much as uh, as the community is important, the it's not just a land mass. It's something that is uh, that is worthy of veneration. on the other hand you know nehru saying not even a bl- blade of grass grows in uh, ladakh and so on so how does it matter if uh, it goes to anybody but then for a hindutvavadi that may not be the case because every kan kan mein shankar hai so then every little bit of this uh, rashtrapurush as they would call it is very very holy so given that construct those who have differing opinions can we give them certain legal provisos saying your life your religion your uh, uh, freedom to practice that is professed but can is guaranteed but still can we all live together so uh, i think these different approaches to the to the big problem of these clash of civilizations uh, and how did are founding uh, you know uh, ideologues of this nation how did they deal with that i think that becomes very important to note yeah well, for me what stands out is it's so weird right on the the jati varna issue savarkar hmm. was the most extreme person that i have come across in my life hmm. on the hindu muslim issue ambedkar is the most extreme person i have come across in my entire life he's like saro ko bahar bhej do एक अलग हो जाओ बस ये आधे इधर जाओ आधे उधर जाओ बस खत्म बीच में दीवार डालो आगे बढ़ो लाइफ में काइंड ऑफ अ सिचुएशन एंड अगेन वियर थिंग बिकॉज इन इंडिया आयरनी इज दैट अंबेडकर हैज बीन द मोस्ट सेलिब्रेटेड आइकन ऑफ द लेफ्ट एंड द लेफ्ट हैज ऑलवेज अक्यूज द अदर साइड ऑफ बींग फैशिस्ट बाबा कभी इस्लाम के ऊपर भी तो चर्चा कर लो अंबेडकर के व्यूज उस पर भी डिस्कस कर लो एंड एंड आई नो यू कोट हिम एक्सटेंसिवली इन द बुक इन इन यू नो इन इन द इनिशियल पार्ट इन द अंबेडकर सावरकर एक्सचेंजेस एंड व्हेन आई वाज रीडिंग दिस बिट I was like, you know, nobody would understand that Savarkar was more extreme on the Jati Varna issue than Ambedkar could be, and Ambedkar was more extreme on the Hindu-Muslim issue than Savarkar could be, which is the entire, you know, it is. non intuitive for the average person right because of yeah. the pop culture identity 
correct yeah i think let's uh, i mean uh, there's a lot that he's written just a small bit of it and people will say oh it's selective quoting and he also had many <laughs> miserable things to say about hinduism of course he had but then uh, you know what was his fundamental premise of uh, you know uh, islam so a, a popular uh, these days very popular uh, you know uh, popularly shared hinduism is said to divide people and in contrast islam is said to bind people together this is only a half truth for islam divides as inexorably as it binds islam is a close corporation and the distinction that it makes between muslims and non muslims is a very real very positive and very alienating distinction the brotherhood of islam is not the universal brotherhood of man it is brotherhood of muslims for muslims only there is a fraternity but its benefit is confined to those within that corporation for those who are outside the corporation there is nothing but contempt and enmity the second defect of islam is that it is a system of social self government and is incompatible with local self government because the allegiance of a muslim does not rest on his domicile in the country which is his but on the faith to which he belongs to the muslim ib bene ib patria is unthinkable wherever there is a rule of islam there is his own country in other words islam can never allow a true muslim to adopt india as his motherland and regard a hindu as his kith and kin that is probably the reason why maulana mohammad ali a great indian but a true muslim preferred to be buried in jerusalem rather than in india according to the muslim canon law the world is divided into two camps darul islam the abode of islam and darul harb the abode of war a country is darul islam when it is ruled by muslims a country is darul harb when muslims only reside in it but are not rulers of it so and so on and so forth unquote so and even in you know we just touched upon it earlier this whole idea of uh, milit the indian army so there too i mean ambedkar writes extensively saying how in the 1930s the the composite the communal composition of the indian army there were about 30 35% of uh, muslims in the cavalry the uh, infantry and all of that and just in 10 years just at around the time of the uh, uh, world war the outbreak of the second world war this number had shot up to many people he says uh, you know some people say 60 to 65% and some people said it was about 50% uh, and he said even 50% is a cause of concern and should alarm the hindus uh, as per dr ambedkar uh, because he's and there again you know he casts an aspersion saying Uh, these are the people who are called as the gatekeepers of india and the uh, the british actually are uh, you know um, being very very partial to the community only because large amounts of them were who were sustaining the british indian army and that's why their concessions to uh, that community uh, of course other than the fact that they all formed part of the larger the book and so on but yeah and then he said if uh, if at all there is an attack on the country uh you know will these gatekeepers uh, can they be uh can they be trusted uh you know will if there there is an attack say from someone from the core religionist say from afghanistan will they not open the gate to them and allow uh, an invasion to happen and this is uh, something that a uh, hindu should be very alarmed about is what ambedkar spoke about and that is exactly what the hindu mahasabha was doing in terms of their militarization drive the sainiki current where they were saying you know let's correct this imbalance uh, more and more hindu Youths uh, should uh, get themselves enlisted. So whether it was Dr. Munje, the earlier president of the Hindu Mahasabha, or Savarkar, this was a constant uh, theme. And by the time of 43, 1943, 1944, the imbalance was actually corrected. And 
about 50% of the uh, indian army was then hindu jat gurkha and all of that and uh, the, the 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 muslim proportion fell back to what it was in the 30s of uh, you know 30% so because i think they all know realize that the british are going to leave that was a uh, you know it was certain and once they leave this whole country is going to be thrown open to a civil war and one community is armed one community uh, you know is in the army the other has been made so pusillanimous being fed with so much of this uh, ahimsa doctrine for so long that they are not going to be able to counter the civil war and obviously there's going to be a takeover and if there's an attack from some of the islamic countries too on an india that is left behind by the british and wallowing in civil war then what is the counter what is the defense so uh, militarization not to harm anyone but for self defense uh, in a in the eventuality of a civil war that would happen post independence i think that was at the crux of their whole militarization campaign in addition to of course providing this feeder circuit to the indian national army uh, ina of uh, netaji subhash chandra bose and rash bihari bose but many of these people who were enlisted into the british indian army then defect and Uh, get into the ina and uh, i truly think and as the records uh, you know also mention it was the ina conflict the naval mutiny and all of that which eventually got us our freedom in 1947 yeah and i think you're right i mean people don't realize the amount of uh, <clears throat> deep thinking that like savarkar was obsessed with arming hindus and yeah. but you have mentioned this so many times in the book and i want to state it again savarkar while he was obsessed with arming hindus the moment we got independence savarkar was like wo chalega abhi ab constitution follow karke jeetna hai ladna hai that is also his obsession with following the constitution after we got independence was equal to the obsession with arming hindus at the same time which right. is something that you know i am so grateful to you that you brought that aspect out in this book because again what happens is people will like ye dekho he wants to arm hindus ye dekho another fascist are baba he keeps telling his people in the hindu mahasabha and you quote him extensively in the book where he goes on saying ए भाई अंग्रेज चले गए अभी जरा थोड़ा नॉर्मल हो जाओ तुम लोग अभी हाँ एजुटेशन करना है सब कुछ करना है धरना देना है मगर ये नहीं करना है एंड विच नाउ आई वांट टू स्पेंड मे बी फाइव मिनट्स नाउ ऑन द गांधी ओल्थी एंड अगेन दीज आर माय कमेंट्स दीज आर नॉट विक्रम्स कमेंट्स आई आई कीप इन बिकॉज देर इज अबिट ऑफ एट्रीब्यूटिंग वॉट द होस्ट सेज टू द गेस्ट एंड आई डोंट वॉन्ट विक्रम टू गेट वन परसेंट ऑफ दैट सो वेन आई रेड द एंटायर थ्री चैप्टर्स विच टॉक अबाउट द गांधी मर्डर्स कैन आई से दिस ऑन रिकॉर्ड Yar, Godse was a pathetic planner. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know how else to say this. इतनी घटिया planning. मतलब क्या planning थी वो? जिस जिस hotel में रह रहे हो, उस hotel के कपड़े भी उधर छोड़ देते हो. सोचते हो कि murder करके जाएंगे, फिर से उधर ही hotel में रहेंगे और अपने कपड़े लेने के. भाई कुछ तो इज्जत करो planning की. <laughs> yeah, including I mean they were so nonchalant. I mean Madan Lal Pawa, one of the uh, chaps in this rookie attempt. वो तो ही वांटेड टू इवन ऑन द वन हैंड गो एंड बंप ऑफ गांधी एंड ऑन द अदर हैंड आल्सो लड़की देखने के लिए जा रहे हैं आई मीन रिश्ता आई मीन यू नो व्हाट आर यू इवन ड्रीमिंग दैट यू आर यू आर किलिंग एन इंपॉर्टेंट पॉलिटिकल लीडर एंड यू थिंक यू विल हैव द टाइम एंड एनर्जी टू एक्चुअली गो एंड सी अ गर्ल एंड एनीवे सो दिस होल थिंग या यू आर राइट दैट 
yeah so this whole conciliatory nature that he started developing towards 46 47 sabarkar and saying you know including when most of the hindu mahasabha people had actually protested saying we should not accept the tricolor and the bhagwa dhwaj should be you know the 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 flag of the hindu rashtra he had hoisted both those flags on his uh, house on 15th august 1947 he was not invited to the celebrations which was just hardly a few kilometers from his house in dadar in bombay and uh, so all of this had made i think these uh, more militant uh, kind of factions within the mahasabha which were of course his creation i mean uh, there's no way that the, the hindu rashtra dal to which uh, godse and apte were integral part of they were all uh, created to counter the rss and to create this fanboys around savarkar and ever, ever since he was feeling increasingly threatened uh, both by the rss as well as the factions within the mahasabha itself of shama prasad mukherjee and uh, mahesh dayal seth and so many others so that apart but as you rightly pointed out once we got freedom yeah this is our government it's our indian so you're not going to, and and that was a tenet all through and i mentioned some uh, other person a marathi poet who says you know uh, when we met in ratnagiri also uh, i just he asked him about gandhi's assassination he said we are not going to murder one of our own uh, you know he's an indian uh, he's and this same thing the abhinav bharat in the early 1900s uh, with savarkar uh, you know founded they had these apprehensions that Gopal Krishna Gokhale was actually acting as, uh, you know, a lot of the secrets and the, you know, the the details about the revolutionaries was being conveyed to the British is what they believed, and so a lot of the militant uh, groups with elements within that said when Gokhale uh, Gokhale Gopal Krishna Gokhale went to London, let's assassinate him also, and then Savarkar had cautioned them then too that. we may have our ideological political differences but he is not an enemy he is an indian and you're not going to kill a fellow indian so these people as you rightly said such rookie attempts i mean they were planning all kinds of things the chalo pakistan assembly let's bomb it and they were making all these plans with the dadaji maharaj that uh, uh, so called uh, saint in uh, bombay who was supplying uh, you know weapons to them to godse and apte then that was not possible uh, you you don't know how you are going to carry all these grenades and ammunition across the border to pakistan but then yeah let's just let's bomb it and then the the plan changes that when the treasury of the nizam is traveling from maharashtra to hyderabad state let us uh, like the kakori case let's uh, you know uh, loot that and take it away because the nizam was still having plans of integrating himself into pakistan and so on but it was only around 12th of january 1948 when gandhi makes this announcement that he's going to go on a fast and to death forcing the government of india to grant the 50 crores uh, that were due to pakistan which the government of india very pragmatically had said we will not give uh, the 50 crores to pakistan the the division that was done of the national exchequer uh, until pakistan steps out of kashmir completely and all the tribesmen army men uh, you know masquerading as Uh, tribesmen coming and invading our territory and taking it over till they go away because all this money is going to be used against uh, india in the kashmir conflict and gandhi says no we have to have a gentle and mount batten actually forces gandhi and you know makes him uh, take the moral high ground it's a gentleman's promise how can you go uh, um, you know back on this and he goes on this fast 
uh, you know, unto death and literally then forces the government of India to mm-hmm. give this money to Pakistan. That was when these people say, Ye sab chodo, Pakistan Assembly, Nizam and all. This is the man we need to bump off. And of course, there are lots of... Uh, uh, they always opposed him. There was this whole uh, this thing in Panchgani where they raised uh, you know black flags against Gandhi when he was going to talk to Jinnah for the talks with him. Uh, but a lot of um, you know misunderstandings there that this uh, Godse ran with a knife and tried to kill him. That was all debunked actually by the Kapoor Commission saying there's no proof uh, that ever there was a uh, attack on Gandhi's life made earlier. Some say, you know, the train in which he was traveling, they tried to hijack all kinds of uh, fascinating uh, lies that were spread, which was not true uh, or backed by evidence. So in, between 12th of January and 30th of January is when this whole uh, plan to execute Gandhi, uh, kill Gandhi uh, happened. And in that, the the, the loopholes uh, by the government of India, the, the Delhi police, the Bombay police, uh, and all of that, I think that literally made Gandhi a sitting duck. You know, on 20th of January, 1948, was when Madanlal Pawat threw that, uh, you know, bomb uh, at when in the prayer meeting when he was uh, in the Birla house. So between 20th of January and 30th of January, 10 days that all these people had, uh, Nagarwala or the 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 deputy commissioner in Bombay. Uh, then you had uh, Sanjeevi, who was in Delhi, the director of intelligence. You had uh, Rana. I mean, you have an important statement of a man you've caught uh, throwing a bomb on the father of the nation. And that statement had to be taken from Delhi to Bombay. And this Rana guy who was uh, supposed to go to Bombay and give it to Nagarwala decides so let me go take a detour to Allahabad, go by train. You don't take a flight and go directly from Delhi to Bombay in a few hours. And then once it goes there, he says, oh, this is in Urdu, so I can't read it. So go back and get it translated and come. Like there's nobody in uh, Bombay uh, who can understand Urdu to translate uh, Madanlal's statement. So because Nagarwala had this, uh, you know, crazy idea that nobody wants to kill Gandhi. They want to kidnap him and uh, seek a ransom from the government. And Savarkar was behind. This was his firm view. Uh, and so let's the first thing he did was let's put a surveillance on Savarkar Sadan uh, and not do anything about finding out even the person who was caught. Now, he was telling that uh, the editor of the Hindu Rashtra newspaper, uh, who was Godse, uh, was all there but then the communication gap between the delhi police and the maharashtra police whether it was bombay or pune uh, to even find out who was this editor of the hindu rashtra if that was just that little bit had been found out that entire gang could have been rounded up and put in jail and gandhi's life would have been saved so uh, i mean there are all these conspiracy theories as to you know who gained the most by gandhi's assassination who uh, who by making him a martyr uh, it was probably much better than having him as a constant thorn in the flesh of the government where you'll go on a fast uh, don't go to battle with pakistan give them 50 crores he also wanted this whole uh, you know road built between east and west pakistan which would slice right through the heart of India, through uh, Delhi and UP and all of that. And what ramifications that might have had for national security and so on, we would uh, we can't even shudder to imagine. So, yeah, a uh, lot of loopholes and gaps and which 
the the justice atmacharan trial the red fort trials also point out as also the uh, the uh, jeevanlal kapoor commission reports the role of the intelligence agencies the government but there too kushal uh, constantly the insinuation is that sardar patel is the one you know who let the guard down but then i point out in the book as well that in january 1948 uh, i think matters had come to such a pass between nehru and patel that patel had almost stopped taking charge of the home ministry completely i also quote a letter there where there were talks of a the patel faction and the hindu mahasabha coming closer to each other and uh, you know people uh, in the hindu mahasabha in the central provinces they were actually trying to arrange a meeting between patel and savarkar so that you know i think patel was getting increasingly disillusioned with uh, the government with nehru he gave up uh, you know his uh, ministry also i mean uh, being actively involved so the home ministry was literally leaderless and it came under the prime minister's uh, supervision during those crucial 18 days uh, but you know even minutes before gandhi was uh, murdered uh, patel had met him along with his daughter mani ben and uh, he said i am unable to continue in this government and gandhi is supposed to have told that, told him that you are the two you and nehru are the two uh, you know arms and eyes that i have and uh, i wouldn't want you to leave i will call nehru over uh, the next couple of days and we'll have a rapprochement of course 15 minutes later he was uh, sadly killed but then the the tensions were very very rife between uh, you know patel and nehru and so constantly the insinuation there also is made that the entire blame of this within the government and within the congress had to fall on patel and outside the government it had to be the hindu mahasabha and in particular savarkar so yeah there are lots of dots to connect there uh, as to why all this was done and how it was i mean many people even go to the extent that you know gandhi ji was shot at about 5:15 pm and uh, they were and he his actual death uh, he was actually alive for about 30 minutes thereafter and why did why was he not taken to the hospital this uh, willingdon hospital or something which is just three it's away from uh, from uh, the birla house um, and you know there were lots of such uh, loopholes of course conspiracy theories which mean nothing today but then you know uh, probably he, as i said he was a sitting duck and uh, him as a martyr saint was much better than him being alive and being a constant thorn in the flesh <laughs> yeah and the absolute massacre of the brahmin community in maharashtra after the murder of gandhi is something that we should all look back at in horror that yeah. uh, and you obviously you talk about it in the book and it, it just you know when i was reading the the you know as people always say oh but uh, other people have also been killed in india who's like two wrongs never make a right and you know those brahmins did not have anything to do with the murder of mahatma gandhi and to yeah, say yeah. you just go out there and willy nilly just butcher people absolutely it, it is an absolute shocker and 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 you know yeah. the way you narrate it in in the book it just shook me i was like my goodness what the hell was that and the worst thing kushal is of course the the, the terrible thing was that it happened but the more terrible thing is that it has been denied i mean uh, yeah. the very fact that this thing happened itself uh, majority of indians today would not even know that just like the 1984 carnage you had a carnage against a community because 
just because a few members of the assassination squad belong to that community i do quote uh, you know uh, people who uh, i mean anyone with the name godse uh, they would literally be burnt alive tied to the cot or whatever and burnt alive oh, and mentioned this in the appendix and from then to all chitpavan brahmins and then of course to the deshasthas also and uh, it started with bombay pune and nagpur and then moved Uh, you know, to all the uh, to the desh, the southwestern Deccan plateau, the Satara, Belgaum, uh, Kolhapur, Meerut, Sangli, the Patwardhan, you know, princely states, and uh, you know, I've referenced, of course, Coenrad scholars like Coenrad Elst and uh, Maureen Patterson. Uh, was the, Maureen was the first one, ironically, someone who's not an Indian, actually doing a lot of research about this, and she was when she came in the 1950s. hardly a few years after this event uh, she was denied uh, you know any documents by the maharashtra government and police uh, to 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 find out and she says uh, the actual number of casualties how many uh, brahmins were actually hacked uh, would never be known because Uh, the truth has been buried and the property is also i mean she says 6 to 10 crores a huge amount in those days uh, this would be just a underestimate that was the loss of property of this community ethnic cleansing of villages uh, you know in maharashtra so most of them uh, you know left their villages and took refuge either in neighboring states the mysore state or in bombay or pune and uh, so on and uh, in fact you know including someone like a bhalji pendarkar the 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 famous film director his studio being gutted in uh, kolhapur and the the maharaja of kolhapur had constituted this justice koyaji commission uh, it's a 95 page report uh, which talks about the role of uh, several of the non brahmin the maratha class and also congressmen and there i'd like to quote i mean you know the, the political angle of that which a congressman himself acknowledges uh, dwarka prasad mishra who was a congress you know home minister in the central provinces he says this and i quote him uh, that although hardly half a dozen maharashtrian brahmins were involved in godse's crime a very large number of them had to pay a price for it those who indulged in indulged in these unlawful activities also included a large number of congressmen belonging to non brahmin communities in fact in nagpur and berar the troublemakers were mostly congressmen some being even office bearers of the various congress committees uh, among those arrested by the police there were more than 100 congressmen and i was immediately subjected to pressure for their release in a meeting of prominent congressmen of nagpur i had to face severe criticism when they threatened to take their complaint to home minister patel that i had to tell them to bring a directive for me from delhi unquote and patel far from being cowed down actually wrote to the chief minister of uh, bombay state uh, bal gangadhar kher uh, in june 1948 saying he was extremely unhappy with the way the state actually handled this whole issue and there was no uh, sense of justice because firs were not filed there was no uh, retribution there was no justice given to them and as i said forget justice to even wash it away and say that this never happened i think that is the sad part and during the research of the book when uh, I, on social media i just put it out saying you know those of you who are comfortable sharing your family histories and stories you know with me uh, if you are comfortable please do that and i got a barrage of uh, you know it was a it was literally very very heart wrenching barrage of messages and um, emails from so many people and i 
had the fortune of actually interviewing a couple of them and uh, you know including one gentleman whom i must acknowledge who sadly did not live to see the book um, mr gopal kulkarni um, whom whose voice and the voices of all these people who wrote to me have actually included in the appendix to the book so that people can for the first time in print maybe uh, and that too in english in a mainstream uh, you know indian narrative hear these voices the least you can do is at least hear them because it's been 70 plus years you can't do much now uh, things have happened uh, so mr kulkarni also who's an eyewitness i think he was about 15 years old when this happened he spoke how uh these congress goons uh, actually entered the house you know uh, the violation of so many women the houses being burnt uh, and everyone you know from buses and trains uh, people would be identified as brahmins and then uh, hacked to death so uh, such a huge uh, thing that happened uh, you know if we talk about the uh, the the first you know use of preventive detention act against political opponents the first huge you know in intra uh, intercaste kind of violence that happened in free india done by members of the ruling party uh, you know and by supporters of a person who preached non violence all his life uh, on his part you know something like this happening i think that's a it's a huge uh, huge thing and today as i said at least one can acknowledge and pay tributes to them and i'm immensely thankful to all the people you know who had the uh, gumption to write to me about this uh, many of them uh, kushal i mean very curiously still wanted to remain anonymous uh, yeah so i noticed that, that in the appendix yeah most of it is anonymous and i respect their right to privacy uh, because i particularly asked them that would you want to be uh, quoted um, and identified and many said uh, no because people uh, who led these mobs who con- committed these crimes many of them their descendants or those parties their descendants they may have changed color and shape uh, and formed new parties or whatever but then they still uh, are very powerful elements uh, in maharashtra politics today and many of them living in maharashtra would not even want to risk their lives again uh, i don't know if i am risking my life by talking so much about all of this but then uh, so be it uh, the, the the truth needs to be told and i think uh, as i said a tribute uh, is what is due for people who had to pay the brunt of it and like i mentioned in some other place too that you know this is the lesson from history where if we understand and we look back and see that how do we deal with such problematic uh, you know uh, issues of our past instead of whitewashing it or uh, putting it under the carpet then you know 1984 might not have happened if we would have had some kind of a policy against yeah. uh, political assassination and how to deal with it the members of that community need not have had to face the wrath of a rampaging mob led by politicians so we never learned those lessons so 19 it just repeated in 1984 and god knows and god forbid ever again in the history of this country yeah i mean uh, if there ever was a you know proof of the weak indian state it keeps coming again and again in in these pogroms that happen in india you know it it's it's just rampant and i mean the one thing i thought in the you know in the last 70 odd years in this republic we must have fixed was law and order but irony of ironies you know the the lowest hanging fruit in governance is never fixed sabko uljhate raho caste religion mein ek dusre ke sath ladate raho sabse aasan tarika hai 
police reforms <laughs> which i think would solve a lot of issues yeah anyway. but it doesn't so vikram now let's take a few questions because you know people have yeah. been asking many questions i think it's only fair we did that like we did for the first book so right. uh, I don't know, sir. A lot of times, people have asked us, "Did Savarkar convince Ambedkar not to convert to Islam? Is there any evidence of that?" No, no not really, is. right? There yeah, isn't. not really. So yeah. I'm going to ask you short, short questions, Vikram, and I'm going to try to cover as many as possible. Yeah. Uh, another so, question is: Did Savarkar ever accuse Mahatma Gandhi of being a British agent? All the time, <laughs> all the time, because <laughs> because uh, you know. I mean, it was not just Savarkar. Even if you hear Ambedkar, uh, you know, in that famous speech of his for uh, the BBC in the 1954 or whatever, where he says, "This man was a was a was double dealing all the time, and he was on the one hand leading a mass movement, on the other hand going also negotiating with the viceroy." And Savarkar also writes that what kind of civil disobedience happens where the masses are leading it and facing all the brunt, and you know, getting lati charged and everything, their properties. Uh, being confiscated, but then behind the this thing, you you are having a Gandhi Arvind pact, uh, and then you know most of it, uh, most of it getting annulled. And in the Gandhi Arvind pact, for instance, including a probe into police atrocities uh, by the British government, Gandhi agreed to drop that uh, demand. So, uh, and even Nehru, uh, you know, I quote him also in the book where he he says. Was this what uh, the was this the reason for which so many of us paid such a huge uh you know personal sacrifice and price uh that at the end of the day you go and negotiate and go back on everything you talk for purna swaraj in 1930 uh, uh, barely a few months after that you go and sit uh, for tea with the viceroy and then agree to anything dominion status bhi chalega ya we'll go to round table conference to uh, it said we will not go to the round table conference because it is the first round table conference but the second round table conference you go and agree on everything that you had earlier disagreed upon so yeah lots of this uh, that savarkar uh, you know pointed out all the time in his shraddhanand he even brought out the fact that during the first world war gandhi was actively recruiting people for uh, the british army that he had actually supported uh, the the british in the boer war the the zulu uh, you know conflict and all of that for which he had also got a medal of loyalty kaiser uh, hind uh, that he was given which he later on gave up uh, you know during the uh, uh, after the jallianwala bagh mass- massacre uh, so but then this whole thing of uh, in fact when rash bihari bose uh, you know when he writes to savarkar uh, and says i agree with your militarization principle but i don't know if it will work uh, in india only because the biggest uh, you know ally of the british which is gandhi uh, will not let that happen so i think that was the running um, you know perception uh, of several leaders of that time as to who was collaborating with whom yeah so sab log that, that was like the standard accusation at that time na jisko bhi suit ke wala tu angrezon ka agent hai i mean uh, <laughs> that was that the best now not yeah. that even now now more so <laughs> <laughs> dalal mafiwi this that all kinds of things that yeah. 
getting so, so somebody has asked this question i'm just stating it but this is answered already in the first book of your savarkar biography Petition. somebody has asked what was savarkar's opinion on the evolving aryan dravidian theory being propagated by you know caldwell i think uh, you, you've dealt it uh, with it in detail it is basically savarkar had no detailed view on it it was just a passing reference that savarkar took i'm speaking on behalf of vikram because yeah. this was dealt in uh, with in our first podcast he had no informed opinion on it. he just said ha bola hai hoga aage badho life mein kind of a thing Yeah, yeah yeah so so i just wanted to put that on the record okay this is very uh, somebody has asked vikram what is the timeline for the two books to be released in america somebody has just asked this my god i don't even know what are the timelines in india no no india ka to aaj official release hai wo to mujhe malum hai no in terms of you know a launch or whatever whether it's virtual or physical event i don't know how it is uh, you know with uh, the evolving covid situation but yeah i i i'm i'm maybe i'll have to get back after asking my publishers because i really don't know how the supply chains work yeah because see uh, the one thing is at least 40% of the podcast viewership and listenership is actually indian diaspora so that's why this is a very common question that you you will get on this podcast i think it's it is available on kindle i guess i'm i'm yeah uh, Yeah. So, so who's uh, so Aditya had asked this question. Aditya, go and check it out on Kindle. Uh, you uh, you may get a copy. But so I get that on Twitter. Uh, yeah. As a as a particular reply to Aditya, uh, you know, maybe answer your post or something, Kushal. All right. Cool. We'll do that. So somebody has asked this in your study. Did you find any text describing why people crossing the sea? cause such massive discrimination from the society this is a very good question actually because this is such a weird obsession ki tum samundar ke bahar nahi jaoge what was it just a purity and pollution issue yeah 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 because yeah we are the sacred land and everybody else is so immoral and waiting to pounce on the pure indian and corrupt his mind into all kinds of things <laughs> wine women <laughs> meat and what not and then the poor innocent indian would be so lured and fall for all these pleasures and obviously lose his caste <laughs> yeah so Perhaps. someone has asked did tatyarao inspire and suggest to netaji to to start the ina did they personally meet as there are no such stories so what is what is the origin yeah. of the ina Um, of course, Netaji did not start the INA. It was started by Raj Bihari Bose. Raj Bihari Bose. Uh, yeah, and Netaji was then invited to to join, uh, and of course, he led the whole campaign. But uh, yeah, so so there also a lot of people say, you know, that uh, that uh, Netaji had a lot of derogatory things to say about Savarkar. But then Netaji then had lot hundred uh, times more derogatory things to say about Gandhi also. uh so you know that doesn't actually qualify but the two of them actually met in 1940 uh, they they met earlier too because when bose was when savarkar was released um, you know and bose was the president uh, of the congress and also an important leader he had constantly kept uh, many members of the congress to wanted savarkar to join the congress it was almost uh, uh, an assumption that he would join but he had this famous uh saying that uh, i would rather be in the last line of the patriots than in the first line of the tra- traitors and he considered the congress as being tra- uh, treacherous to the country because they'd gone too far in the policy of muslim appeasement according to him and so um, these two met in 1940 uh, june 22nd or some such date and then uh, in bombay uh, and 
according to balarao savarkar uh, he writes a letter uh, um, savarkar's secretary balarao savarkar he writes a letter commemorating rashbihari bose's some you know birth anniversary and in that he mentions that during this meeting was when savarkar told uh, netaji that you know he was then running this forward block and wanting to go on a civil disobedience movement which the congress opposed uh, everyone from gandhi to nehru saying we should not embarrass the british government when it is going through such a turmoil of the second world war so savarkar advised him that don't go for these uh you know civil disobedience or even get fooled by the hindu muslim unity mirage uh but this constant formula that the revolutionaries had all through uh you know right from 1857 uh and all these abhinav bharat anushilan samiti everything that some way can be infiltrate the indian army uh get all the training uh increase our numbers and then defect and form a counter army and it's only through the military might that the british can be subdued uh all of these campaigns at best it can probably galvanize a sense of nationalism and bring people together in a country where two people never th- think alike uh but then you know uh, this would be the only way to uh you know get freedom and between 1937 and 1940 there have been copious uh, you know correspondences between rashbihari bose and savarkar which i quoted extensively where rashbihari was almost like a fanboy you know he is like, like you are the only one who understands uh, glo- global geopolitics you understand the 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 you know the how india can be free you're a leader and he in his uh, dai ajia shugi that japanese paper also he writes that he's a leader of a new india and all of that and in fact rashbihari bose also f- forms a, a japan chapter of the uh, hindu mahasabha and so the uh, he was as much a hindutvavadi as uh, savarkar was and so it is said that in this meeting when he was inspired by savarkar to take this and he also showed him all the correspondences with rashbihari bose and who was in japan then and that he must go and ally with him and enemies enemies are friends so uh, ally with uh, our enemies enemy the allied powers and so that's when he 6 months later quite uh, providentially in january is when 1941 is when netaji s- slips off from india goes first to germany meets hitler and his uh, associates as a uh, hitler's indian uh, legion that is formed uh, to liberate india and then of course it was thought that the battlefield would be better placed if it is somewhere within asia and that's when rashbihari bose invites him to uh, you know southeast asia and they form the uh, the ina is already formed but then he's given the in charge of that and the rest is history so but then yeah the 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 inspiration according to the savarkarite faction and but netaji doesn't acknowledge that ever huh? he never writes about it uh, but then there are there is new research i also quote uh, professor kapil kumar uh, you know who's actually accessed and i full credit to him that he's accessed several of these uh, soldiers uh, you know in the ina trials were held in 1946 the soldiers of the ina many of them uh, gave their con- confession to sardar patel and so on saying that we joined the indian indian army on the behest of barrister savarkar uh, and then later defected to the ina so the linkages there are very very clear uh, as to how uh, you know the the feeder circuit as i mentioned earlier into the 
INA to actually liberate India was provided from within the country by these Hindu Mahasabha people. And also constantly, Kushal, you would also have seen these uh, intelligence reports that I quote as to how Savarkar was in touch with people in Italy, people in uh, Japan and Germany and all of that. And that, uh, that clearly showed that on the one hand, the Hindu Mahasabha was sitting on the negotiation table with the government. On the the Jekyll and Hyde, on the backside, they were actually dealing with with uh, the uh, enemies of the government. And that fascinating character that I found of the Savitri Devi, uh, yeah. you know, lady of Greek origin, who's so uh, uh, you know beholden by Hinduism, she worshipped Hitler. She's uh, considered him as a avatar of Vishnu and all of that. And then she comes to India, converts to Hinduism, and then she also marries this, and she and the Savarkar brothers, both Baba Rao and Vinayak, uh, you know, they have a lot of correspondence. Uh, Baba Rao even writes uh, the foreword to her book, a warning to the Hindus and so on. And she then goes to Calcutta and marries this man called Asit uh, Mukherjee, uh, who was a double agent of uh, the Nazi <clears throat> party. So sitting in Calcutta, he was also, he was within with the government, but also passing on all of these secrets and so on to the uh, government. So these people claim that they were closely in touch with uh, Netaji in Calcutta. And through those connections, you know, they some say, you know, Jinnah uh, inspired Savar, uh, Netaji to meet Savarkar. Some say the Savitri Devi and her husband were, were created a bridge between these two leaders and later on introduced Netaji also to uh, the German, uh, the, the Nazi party and facilitated his escape out of India. So there are lots of such underground thriller stories, which uh, we never get to know the full truth. <laughs> so, so so, would we be fair uh, if we compared Savarkar to say somewhat like a Theodore Herzl and yeah. Hindutva to Zionism? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, that was the first thing that struck me when I went to Israel and, you know, saw the uh, but of course, you have the mount uh, there where, where he's venerated. Here, of course, he's called all kinds of names. <laughs> yeah. This is an interesting question somebody has asked. The, so Vikram, so somebody says, R.C. Muchundar has written that in some instances, a historian mm -hmm. must be a judge and not just a note keeper. What is your opinion, Vikram? <laughs> I do not agree. Uh, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't... Um, you know, demean myself of being a note keeper. I think uh, a lot of it can be said without actually being judgmental uh, because you cannot judge, um, you know, by the retrospective luxury of sitting in your air conditioned rooms and say they could have done this or that. And we don't know the situations in which these characters lived. Uh, I've always said that the historian's primary duty is to bring out records from hitherto inaccessible archives and um, sources and to illuminate them and let the truth speak for itself. Because a lot of, because at every point, if you start becoming judgmental and pass your, you know, uh, jury on a set of people who are not there to defend themselves, uh, you know, you can write a very vituperative book about Savarkar or Gandhi or whoever and say they could have done this, they could have done that, but we were not in their shoes at that time, then I don't know what purpose that serves. Instead, you place the situation, you paint. I think a historian is like a painter who paints the entire socio-cultural, political situations, posits these characters in the with that painting in the background, and then 
let's let a discerning wide reader why do we uh, you know underestimate her knowledge that she will not uh, be able to uh, you know make a good conclusion as to which way she uh, wants to uh, you know um, uh, lean on to if after reading all of this if someone thinks that savarkar was a traitor was a stooge so be it i mean i don't have to be his lawyer or advocate and force you into becoming a savarkar bhakt i myself am not one uh, so at the same time it need not be a project of demonization where you know you have to uh, pick out of context and actually um, create a narrative which demonizes a person who is not around to defend himself or herself all right so somebody has asked this question while i don't want us to answer this question because i believe this question will only get full justice when you read it in the book it's a good question so what did savarkar do after coming out of jail was he still fighting against the british or did he side with the british i don't want vikram to answer this and i'll give my explanation why as somebody who's already read this book twice i believe you cannot understand this until you don't read the book you have yeah. to understand that while he was not fighting he was still fighting and the kind of torture he had to go through even after getting out so i mean for every personal thing like the the copious records that uh, vikram has shared in the book it will just not do justice if i make vikram answer this question because as someone who reads books and understands what to get out of the book and what not to so, so i'm taking the liberty while vikram will let me mai bol deta i i still am taking the liberty over here because the point is that you have no idea what that man had to go through even after coming out of the jail like in the first part we you know vikram narrates the torture he faced in andaman you have to understand the torture he faces in ratnagiri or in the places where he goes in maharashtra where he is literally confined to that area and yeah. he tries to do like every speech has to be measured like to the milligram ki maine ye word idhar ka idhar likh diya ye word udhar ka udhar likh diya so so read the book by the book damn it you will understand what torture that man went through even after getting out of jail so that yeah. is my answer i am answering on behalf of vikram because i know vikram will happily narrate the story i will not let him narrate it i want you to buy the damn book that that is my answer because- <laughs> i just want to add one line to that that you know constantly this whole thing that you know but he did not participate in the quit india movement and so uh, you know that's why he is not a freedom fighter or whatever so that whole thing you know that argument itself rests on the premise that there was just one the freedom struggle i think there were multiple freedom struggles that were going on parallelly uh, the quit india movement whether as i said whether that got us freedom eventually whether it was ina whether it was the armed conflict it was the the sanyasi revolt the tribal revolts a lot of all of this that was going around all over the country maybe a lot of that nationalistic feeling was spurred by you know Gan- the gandhian movements but then to ascribe that there's just one one freedom struggle and anybody who did not belong to that stream Uh, are not stakeholders in in the struggle for freedom, or they don't deserve to be called patriots, or they were stooges and all of that. I think that's very very problematic. It's almost similar to like what happens now, right? I mean, if you don't agree with a particular party or government, you're anti-national. Go to Pakistan. All of that 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 keeps getting heard. This is very similar. If you don't, if you're not participating in the Quit India movement, then you're not a freedom fighter. Uh, you're a traitor. You're a stooge and all of that. now within the congress itself i documented so uh, extensively people like molana azad nehru all of them raj gopalachari included uh, were dismayed at the quit india movement they did not support it 
Ambedkar called it a, 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 an act of treachery against the country and uh, the Quit India movement at a time when Japan was threatening to invade our uh, borders. And he said, uh, you know, it's, it should be the duty of every patriotic Indian not to support this Quit India movement at all. Uh, so there were so many such people, Jinnah, of course, and the Muslim League did not support it. So a movement that was launched without any planning and within two, three days of uh, it, uh, you know, being launched, the entire Congress brass uh, being holed up in jail and so on. And then it becomes a violent movement. The Congress itself actually disowned that movement because uh, it was anything but non-violent. And one wonders, you know, the Chauri Chora, when few people went and burned some police station, an entire movement, the non-cooperation, which was at the consummation, you know, actually come to the pinnacle of success. It was called off at the uh, at the climax. The amount of violence that happened in 1942 uh, during the Quit, Quit India by the underground revolutionaries, people in the, uh, you know, the, the the army and so on who came out because it's do or die. Uh, there was no policy as to what that meant. You know, mar ke maro ya kya karo? <laughs> you know, do or die. What What is the do? So, you know, they, because there was no direction, there was no leadership. Uh, Gandhi had no plan uh, for Quit India at all. And so to posit anybody's patriotism to whether they participated in Quit India movement or a particular thing or I think that is being very disingenuous with uh, historical facts and yeah like you mentioned this is dealt with in great and excruciating detail in the book which I can't uh, you know quote all these people the counterpoints viewpoints of various people to make this case out and I think people should buy the book and read it. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, another question, I'm just reading it out because I, we have spoken about it already. So, like somebody has asked how much of Savarkar, uh, how, how much was Savarkar acquainted with the allegedly Varna-less Indic traditions? What did he think of them? He's saying Advaita, Buddhist, Sikh, etc. in mind. Why did he construct Hindutva? Uh, so to this person, Anmoljit, again, I literally read the quote of Savarkar in the early part of the podcast where you realize that Hindutva for him was something different. It was more of a political social movement where everybody organizes itself like a Android platform <laughs> where different apps can exist. So that literally was Savarkar's conceptualization and Vikram quotes Savarkar beautifully and I read that quote out in the initial so part but I guess you joined the discussion later on. Uh, that's why you were the there. So it, this is an interesting question Vikram and I want to take this up. Would you be open to write an alternate history of Indian in, uh, independence? Maybe some sort of a parallel way of thinking where what if Bhagat Singh, Sukhdev, Rajguru were never tried and Gandhi would never be a pacifist? <laughs> yeah, these what-ifs and hypothesization of, you know, that's a typical, you know, a lazy journalist. I mean, I'm not saying anything about the, the per, uh, person who's asked the question generally. I mean, in the media, uh, what if uh, Patel was the prime minister? What if Savak? I mean, we never know. It could be anything, right? I mean, but then a parallel narrative... Uh, is something that is very important. And I think finally, India is becoming mature enough uh, to acknowledge and see this, that the for three generations, the version that is fed to us of a very, very simplistic, linear, monochromatic, uh, you know, Attenborough film kind of uh, thing that goes saying, ye hua, ye hua, dandi march, this, that. And it's very, very, very predictable, uh, the, the road to freedom. Uh, finally, I think India is waking up to the fact that this is not uh, how it was. And so many scholars, I mean, uh, I 
commend you know what Anuj and Chandrachur and all of them do to uh, to to bring this other fact uh, facts out. I know my, my dear friend Sanjeev Sanyal is working on a book on just the you know connecting the dots of uh, all the revolutionary movements uh, you know across India, and um, you know then a different narrative comes up you know because time and again our history books have called even in the early 20th century we have the moderate faction and the extremist faction right i mean the moderates under gokhale extremists under tilak but this is just a nomenclature word and once you put that label you have this but what if they were called the moderates were actually called loyalists and what if the extremists were called nationalists you yeah. know then your conception your perception of these people their policies and what they did is completely different so same goes with uh, so i mean if the non violent movement is called collaboration or so then i don't know uh, maybe a different uh, <laughs> you know picture of the freedom struggle emerges and yeah at some point i'd like to do it because this documentation is kushal mind boggling i mean that just the the transfer of power documents uh, you know which uh, um i have just tried to swim through because there are 12 volumes of that uh, each volume going to several thousand 4000 5000 pages of every damn letter that is exchanged between everybody and gandhi's letter to the viceroy the viceroy writing to the secretary of state and the motivations uh, between uh, for partition what they thought what, it's it's all sitting there you know the and it's been compiled uh, by the british actually uh, so they they put all of that together in these 12 volumes called the transfer of power yeah somebody a team of people would probably have to sit together and see through that and bring these different narratives and then only we'd actually really know the true story as to how and why india got her freedom and after 75 years if we've still not done that it says a lot about us as a country right <laughs> You know, you know the irony of it all is Vikram. What hurts me is while I'm so grateful to you, like I always said, I mean, and I and I, I and I have no shame saying this in the open. I've said this to you offline also that I'm grateful to you because what you have done, I mean, maybe this should have been done in the first two decades since the formation of this country. But the irony of our nation history is that, at seventy years old, after that, a Tripurdaman Singh writes that Bhai Nehru did this. आज सत्तर साल हो गए उसके बाद में सावरकर जैसे पिविटल कैरेक्टर आई मीन अ मैन हु प्लेड सच एन इंपॉर्टेंट रोल इन द हिस्ट्री ऑफ प्रोबेबली वन ऑफ द मोस्ट सिग्निफिकेंट मूवमेंट्स ऑफ इंडिया व्हिच इज हिंदुत्व एट अ सोशियोलॉजिकल लेवल एंड इट टुक यू आफ्टर सेवेंटी इयर्स टू जस्ट सिट डाउन देयर विथ यू नो कीपिंग योर इमोशन ऑन द साइड बिकॉज लुक आई हैव रेड the keer biography and the other one that you talk about you know the written by the marxist uh, person look those were like mereko savarkar mein kuch acha nahi dikhta and mereko savarkar mein kuch bura nahi dikhta i am being very open and again these are not vikram's views these are my views and when i was reading this i was like shukar hai my reaction was shukar hai kisi ne to likhi kisi ne to kaam kiya ki bhai ye bola hai bas abhi jo samajhna hai so so vikram now that both sen this will be my last question now that both the volumes are done a how do you feel about you know this project maybe you know ending in a way and what is the next project then uh, like in the prologue i write i almost feel like i've exorcised a ghost 
you know it has consumed my time my you know emotions because yeah at some point it's it's a very disturbing account uh, though it's just his life story that uh, you know i was dealing with and i had my own personal travels during the course of this uh, the these two volumes uh, and despite that to just uh, keep at uh, you know my research work and my writing was very hard to be honest and so but then at the same time kushal i think i'm immensely immensely grateful to to the kind of reception that the the books have got and that underscores your point that you know there is there was a thirst for it there was a need that was felt and that somebody had to provide it that's all uh, it's like the usual thing in cinema where you say yeah we keep showing you david dhawan films because that's what the masses want right but then unless you probably cultivate a taste for a sham benegal movie there probably never be an interest for something else so uh, so uh, and so the kind of you know outpouring of affection that i have got uh, i think post this uh, it's so little uh, of my making but then it's thanks to the book and the protagonist uh, you know that uh, even when i was uh, battling for life a couple of months back the kind of uh, prayers that came my way and well wishes i'm getting very emotional even saying this that i didn't expect and i wrote that even on social media that i really don't know what i've deserved to get that kind of love and affection and goodwill people have not even met people whom i don't know who were all mannat mang rahe the they were all uh, keeping uh, so many uh, these things for me and that was that was deeply touching and there the 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 reason for that was less of me and more you know this this subject uh, which somewhere deeply touched them which was deprived to them for so many uh, decades very wantonly uh so it's with a deep sense of gratitude uh, to all the readers to everybody uh, you know for all their uh, love and yeah moving forward one has to move forward in a biographer usually gets it's it is very very difficult because emotionally you get so connected with uh, it's almost like you know some a huge energy getting away from you i suffered that when i wrote about gohar jan and it took me a long long time to get over her and to stop uh, getting dreams of her as well and promiscuity is the best antidote for a biographer so you move on to the your next love affair and, <laughs> and i'm working on a series of projects with uh with my publishers penguin the biographies of tipu sultan of shivaji and another of unsung heroes and heroines of uh, chhatrapati shivaji maharaj i'm sorry before anybody uh, comments that on, on the comments my uh, lapse of uh, this thing that the biography of chhatrapati shivaji maharaj of tipu sultan and also of uh, unsung heroes and heroines of indian history from various time spans and so yeah so but hope but this would still remain a very very special and an important uh, you know project that i've done and feel like a yagya khatam ho gaya it's like literally and uh, one of the thoughts that came to me in hospital was uh, would i even survive to see the book in print so i'm i'm glad i'm at least uh, you know alive to tell the tale and it's uh, it's as i said it feels very it's like a consummation of a journey of oh, oh vikram i can tell you on behalf of each and every listener viewer of this podcast that we are glad that you're healthy uh you know you are one of those rare gems i and i say this i say this offline i'll say this online i'll say this everywhere you are a ray of hope in the sea of mediocrity i always say this you are that rare ray of hope in the sea of mediocrity where 
at least now we know look you don't have to like savarkar you don't have to dislike savarkar whatever yaar jo karna hai karo magar at least now we know what he said now we know what he did and and so on behalf of each and every person i want to say vikram thanks a lot for writing these two volumes thank you thank you so very much kushan thank you guys i'm going to share this particular page now and i'm going to share it on the screen and i'm going to read it because to me and i've highlighted it so don't get irritated ki kya yellow yellow dekh rahe ho but kindle use karta hu bhai to kindle mein highlight karna padta hai unlike many big, big book reviewers this reviewer actually reads the book usko yeah. notes nahi milte main khud ke notes leta hu so yeah, i, I must say, i must say that on record kushal that you know i mean within a matter of what two three days you finished a book of 700 pages and most of the lazy journalists uh, you know i mean it's their, it's an occupational hazard they have so many other things to do they can't read a history book uh, in in a couple of days so quickly the usual questions uh that one needs to ask but you are among the few rare gems again who actually goes through with so much of pain and detail and then comes up with informed intelligent questions because otherwise and that that's so important even for your guest otherwise we we get bored we know what is coming our way the same googly is the same acha but usne mercy petition dala acha but usne ye kiya acha usne wo kiya and like a on an autopilot mode in like a robot you just keep narrating the same story i almost feel like saying are bhai ja ke youtube video dekh lo i already told so many times about this same thing or read the book uh, but then you know the kind of questions you asked even today uh, i don't think i've been asked that before and so thank you also very much for taking this trouble to make this podcast so and that's the reason for its popularity that you put in all this trouble to ensure that it is an informed intelligent discussion and not one of the hackneyed stereotypical conversations that people have and for the record i really asked so many questions to vikram on whatsapp mujhe lag raha tha ki baad mein vikram kahi mujhe whatsapp pe block na kar de ki yaar tu tu do chapter padhta char message likhta fir do chapter padhta char message likhta tu mujhe but i i just i fell in love and it happened during the first time when i was reading and the second time but guys this is to me this page to me this you know this this answer of savarkar i thought it summed up savarkar's personality and i wanted to read the whole damn thing so i'm going to read it for you and then we'll end today's podcast so here we go so savarkar says the fact is that nationalism and communalism are in themselves either equally justifiable and humane or not nationalism when it is aggressive is as immoral in human relation as is communalism when it tries to suppress the equitable rights of other communities and tries to usurp all to itself but when communalism is only defensive it is justifiable and humane as an equitable nationalism itself the hindu nationalists do not aim to usurp what belongs to others therefore even if they be called hindu communalists they are justifiably so and are about the only real internationalists for a real and justifiable indian nationalism must be equitable to all communities that compose the indian nation but for the same reason the muslims alone are communalists in an unjustifiable anti national and treacherous sense of the term for it is they who want to usurp to themselves all that belongs to others the indian national congress only condemns itself as an anti national body when it calls in the same breath the hindu mahasabha and the muslim league as bodies equally communal in the reprehensible or treacherous sense of that term 
Consequently, if to defend the just and equitable rights of Hindus in their own land is communalism, then we are communalists par excellence and glory in being the most devoted Hindu communalists, which to us means being the truest and the most equitable Indian nationalists. Now, I purposely read this quote. I wanted to read this in totality is because you can agree with Savarkar, you can disagree with Savarkar, but this quote epitomized Savarkar. This was him in all its pomp and glory. So once again, everybody, if you're watching this and I've not read the first volume of the series, I insist you buy the first volume first. Read that. Because if you don't read that, you will not understand volume two because there is there is a story, there is a development of the personality of Savarkar. There are, and I'm not saying Vikram makes those, the beauty of both the books is Vikram actually leaves his judgment aside. The problem with other biographies of Savarkar were that they would use one quote of Savarkar and then there was a 20 page commentary on what Savarkar could have meant, what have Vikram does none of this. This book is 80% Vikram quoting this person, that person, Savarkar, Gandhi, ye, wo. And all Vikram does is, bhaiya, ye, ye hua hai, ab apni lagao. And this is why these two books are the most important to be read in Indian sociopolitical history. I am leaving the links of the, uh, you know, the Amazon links in the description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version which is going to be put on later on or the version on YouTube right now, please buy these books. Not only that, once you buy this book, I want you people to read one chapter, have discussions. It is important to discuss this book. People don't realize what all can be extracted for this from this. So I'll end today's discussion. I You might be like, Kushal, you so book, book discuss karna padega. this book is too important to not be read and not be discussed so go and buy this book this is request order so i will end today's podcast on that note once again thanks for watching the video please subscribe to the channel leave a comment like the video become a member or subscribe on Patreon or buy the merch or send your donations through UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.